0: Hey, Kleberg here. Quick announcement before we get to the show. The next episode is episode 100. And as a celebration of sorts, I'm going to be answering listener questions. But what fun is answering questions if it's not paired with a little pain and suffering? I'll be doing it while performing the Hot Ones Challenge. Ten wings, ten sauces that get hotter as I go. If you have a question for me, whether it be about movies, the show in general, or just my personal life, head to force5podcast.com and look for the Show 100 banner at the top of the page to submit a question. Alright, here's show number 99. And now, for your feature presentation. Just one, or two,
1: or three, or four, but five, Force 5.
0: Hello, and welcome to The Force 5 Podcast, a show where I force my guests to come up with a movie-themed top five list, and then we reveal our picks on air. I'm your host, ex-video store clerk, wannabe screenwriter, and fellow list nerd, Jason Kleberg. If the show sounds a bit different, that's because my family and I moved. It probably doesn't sound like it, but I haven't recorded in like a month. My wife Jackie got into Cal Berkeley to continue her education, so we moved over to the city. Not a huge drive, like 45 minutes from our other house, but a 20 degree difference in temperature. And uh, this room doesn't have noise treatment or anything like that, so if it sounds different, that's why. Let's talk about Force 5, though. The term two-hander can be taken several ways in film. In the most literal sense, a two-hander is a film with only two characters. On the other hand, it can also mean that there are other characters present, but they're kind of peripheral to the overall story. And for this episode, I had to really justify one of my picks. I still stand by it. You can let me know in the comments if I'm wrong. Tell me on Twitter, tell me on Instagram, whatever, uh, if you don't agree with me. My guest, Drea Clark. Had no problems defending her picks. She was an amazing guest, as usual. You've probably heard her on Maximum Film. You've probably heard her on Screen Drafts. And I really suggest that if you're not already subscribed to Maximum Film, go do that now so you can hear more of her. But before you hear her here... (laughs) <laughs> that was kind of a tongue twister. We need to talk about last week's episode feedback, which starred Tarek Davis from NBC's The Amber Ruffin Show, where we talked about five great 90s future films. Me and Tarek had a record number of crossover picks, so clearly we left some good ones off. we will have a bigger response than normal from Instagram this week. Uh, Lauren Milberger said The Fifth Element. Wandering Zoo, The Matrix also mentioned Gattaca. Courtney Holland said You Have Me Stumped, Speed. Don't think Speed is a future film, but that's okay. Uh, speed. Yeah, Speed. Other ones mentioned were A Time Cop, Jean-Claude Van Damme classic, Universal Soldier, which was on our honorable mentions, and Encino Man, which is an interesting pick, but technically does kind of fit with the theme I mean it's the future for him so again if you want to get in on the action you want to get your comments read on the show head to Twitter at Force5Pod head to Instagram at Force5Podcast or hit me up on the website Force5Podcast at gmail.com or head to the website for the show form. As for reviews I saw a couple of things this week that I want to talk about. The first is the newest in the Predator series this one is called Prey Why do you want to hunt? Because you all think that I can't.
1: I saw a sign in the sky. I'm ready. There's something out there. I'm coming with you. You can't. I'm trying to protect
0: you. Protect me from what? The year is 1719. The highly evolved predator species lands on Earth for the first time in search of the next great hunt. There it finds incredible predators like dogs, wolves, bears, and the French. But its greatest adversary will be a Comanche warrior named Naru. 1987's Predator pitted Arnold Schwarzenegger and his band of sweaty commandos against an alien being whose only goal was to collect the skull of the planet's strongest being. It was a sci-fi action masterpiece that immediately had a sequel greenlit, and boy, was Predator 2 a disappointment. That film kind of killed the franchise for close to 20 years when the Robert Rodriguez-produced Predators released, which was fine, forgettable. And then eight years later, Shane Black came back to the table after writing the first film and directed The Predator in 2018, a film that I was really looking forward to that ended up being the worst movie I saw that year. I cannot understand how he could make a film so bad. And I didn't even mention the Alien vs. Predator films that released in the mid-2000s, and that's only because I've tried so hard to forget about them. Needless to say, each Predator sequel and spin-off film has been pretty bad, so going into Prey, I had pretty low hopes... Um, and I'll tell you right off the bat, Prey fucking ROCKS! Prey gets back to the basics. It strips the series back to what made Predator so special. The strongest, smartest species on that planet being hunted on their own territory. This time it takes place on the frontier, and instead of well-armed commandos, we get a tribe of Comanche led by James Franco. Just kidding. All of the Comanche characters are played by Comanche people, which was great to see, and it really does make a difference. And if the time and now antiquated technology is not intriguing enough, the main character is a teenage girl named Naru, a capable axe slinger and medicine woman who's been living in the shadow of her older brother, the tribe war chief named Tabe. In order to truly become a warrior in her tribe, she needs to kill something that's hunting her. Easier said than done. Along the way, we see Naru grow smarter as a warrior, but not with brute strength. We see her get smarter. Like Arnold in the first film, she uses the land to her advantage. She pays attention to the Predator's weaknesses, and she dissects the technology to find out how it can come in handy. She's five foot nothing and probably weighs less than hundred pounds, and when you see the Predator killing the more imposing people in the Northern Plains, you just wouldn't buy Naru going up against it mano a mano. At one point, she tells a story about how she watched a beaver chew off its own leg to get out of a trap, but she's smarter than a beaver, and this is a story that's paid off brilliantly during the final showdown, not once, but three times. She's also got a kick-ass American dingo named Sari who helps out in spots when she really needs him most. The plains are an excellent source of brilliant visuals with lush green forest, refreshing creeks, and vast fields that all look fantastic on the OLED. There are several shots that we linger on that could easily have been framed and tossed on a wall. If I had one gripe with the movie, however, it's the CGI. We still haven't figured CGI out as a showcase, and the animals, namely the mountain lion and the bear, and at times the predator itself while jumping, looked really bad. It wasn't enough to fully take me out of the film, but it was jarring at times. Wrapping up here, uh, Prey is easily the best Predator film since the original, and honestly might be neck and neck to be my favorite in the entire series. The main character's journey is really compelling, I thought that Amber mid did a terrific job as Naru, Dan Trachtenberg directed it fantastically, and the battle scenes kick all kinds of ass. They're brutal, they're really gory, limbs, blood, both red and bright green strewn about. There's also a Comanche dub on Hulu, which is an amazing surprise and um, it never feels like an old Kung Fu film. The actual actors all came back to dub, the mouths match up terrifically. Prey was a great surprise, and I'd be surprised if it's not in the conversation when it comes to my top 10 at the end of the year, really loved Prey. Completely switching gears, uh, I saw a, an erotic thriller called Scorned from 1993. She was a happily married woman, a perfect wife. We stopped for a drink and time just slipped away. Dinner's been ready for over an hour. <laughs> Who'd do anything? I was, uh, kind of looking for something a little extra. For her husband. I need this deal! Please! What are you asking me, German? Anything. <sighs> until. His name is Alex West, and he's some hot shuttle with Platinum Associates. And we're gonna have to ask you to step down. <laughs> now, she's going to come into their lives. This is Amanda Cressfield. She's gonna be your new tutor. It'll be painless, I promise. And make them believe. My feet hurt, and my back is killing me. Well, 30 minutes of yoga and a massage works wonders. She's there for them. You need me. Shannon Tweed rose to fame in the early 80s via Playboy, becoming the Playmate of the year in 1982. She started her acting career shortly after, scoring an extended role in the daytime soap Days of Our Lives and tons of roles in one-off TV episodes and B-movies. In the late 80s and early 90s, she started riding the wave of lesser-known erotic thrillers, films that really took advantage of at least two of her very robust talents. I was recently reading through some discussion about Vinegar Syndrome films, and her catalog came up as some recommendations for their library, and I realized that even with over 100 acting credits to her name, I don't think I've ever seen a Shannon Tweed film, so I picked Scorned, a film that was only ever released on VHS and Laserdisc here in the United States. Luckily, somebody was kind enough to lend me an English-language German media book version that was released on Blu-ray in 2018 with a run that only lasted 250 copies, so this baby is rare. The plot of the movie is basically a copy of 1992's The Hand That Rocks the Cradle or later on, Friend of the Family 2 from 1996, but with way flimsier motivations for a woman who is clearly just deranged. Shannon Tweed plays Patricia Langley, a housewife to her husband Truman. Truman works for a big architectural firm, and he's looking to secure a big partnership with some big businessman named Mason Wainwright. They have Mason over for dinner, and he makes a move on Patricia. She's horrified, of course, but in a shocking twist, her husband tells her that he has basically given Mason the green light to rape her in order to secure the job, and that she needs to take one for the team. In a very uncomfortable scene, she reluctantly lets it happen. The next day, Truman goes into the office with an extra pep in his step, only to find out that he didn't get the partnership after all, that it's been given to one of his co-workers, Alex Weston. Realizing he's been cucked and bought a Camaro he couldn't afford for nothing, he goes into his office on a Sunday and blows his own brains out. Now, from the outside looking in, I feel like Patricia should be mad at the man who raped her and her spineless husband for letting, nay, inviting this to happen to her. And while she does hold Mason responsible, she doesn't blame her husband as much as she does the man who got the partnership, Alex Weston. She vows to go after him, his wife Marina, and his son, the only person on planet Earth named Roby. She arms herself with the best ammo in this kind of situation, information, and gets to work. Seems Marina has an addiction to pills, and Roby is an idiot who's not doing well in school. So Patricia gets into the house under the guise of a tutor and starts trying to tear the family apart from the inside. She uses familiar tactics like trying to leave subtle hints that Alex is cheating on her, starts drugging the wife by putting pills in tea and coffee, seduces the high school senior son, uh, an underage kid, and then bangs his dad while he watches. The only person really suspicious at first is their Cuban housekeeper Belle. The plan, I guess seems sound enough, but soon after she infiltrates the Weston residence, we realize that Patricia is just batshit crazy. It doesn't feel like she's doing this for revenge as much as it feels like she's just kind of a role playing a fantasy of evil upon the family. It seems like she likes a lot of the stuff that she's doing. For example, I can see why she'd seduce the son in order to turn him against his father, but. When she goes back for a second helping, it's hard to see why. Again, the kid's 17 years old. Surely he's not that great in the sack. She definitely enjoys it. At one point, introducing the young buck to a copper cock ring. And she really lost all sympathy for me when she went after the only person onto a ruse, the innocent housekeeper. Then again, it didn't seem like we were supposed to feel sympathy for Patricia at that point. We were just kind of along for this twisted roller coaster ride to see how far this evil woman would take things. The film was directed by the guy who also plays Alex Weston, Andrew Stevens. He wrote the early 90s erotic thriller series Night Eyes 1, 2, and 3, disappeared for years until he popped up in 2007 at direct Half Past Dead 2, the sequel no one wanted to the Steven Seagal film no one wanted in the first place, that replaced that ponytail loser with WCW's Goldberg and death row rapper Corrupt. He also directed a film called Fire Down Below, again not the Steven Seagal film, but one with another brain-dead Hollywood asshole, Kevin Sorbo. There's nothing that stands out about the direction here, but it's easy to point out the haphazard editing, which frequently switches tones in such a jarring way that I'd have thought it was intentional in the hands of a crew with more skill. As it is, the film feels sloppy and rushed. The script, written by Barry Average, is unoriginal and formulaic, more like Barry Below Average. The real bright spot in the crew here is Shannon Tweed, who I thought did a great job as the maniacal tutor. She had some real sly facial expressions that added a certain charm to her cruel debauchery as she attempted to pick people off one by one. While not a strong film overall, I did have some fun watching Scorned, because it was so ridiculous and kind of surreal. Like I've said before, now the erotic thriller genre is all but dead, so films like this that truly feel like softcore pornography at times just really kind of feel out of place. My wife walked in while I was watching it and thought I was watching a porn. An easy mistake to make because of course the one scene she walked in during was the one where Patricia was masturbating while her window was open because she realized the son was spying on her. The fact that my wife actually sat down and watched the rest of it, however, is proof that there's something compelling here. Whether you're watching it for the sex, of which there is quite a bit, the bad acting, or just to see how things unravel in this web of flawed human beings, there's something here. It's tough to recommend holistically, but I gotta be honest, I'm interested in checking out some more Shannon Tweet films, and it seems like Tubi has a few streaming, so uh, I'm gonna select another one here quite soon.
1: Hey, this is David from the Piecing It Together podcast, a podcast about movies and the movies that
0: inspire them. For over four years each week, a guest and I take a look at a new movie through the lens of what
1: other movies we think were either an influence or connect in some other way. It's a fun, unique way to discuss films that leads to a great list of other movies to check out that either explore the same themes and ideas or maybe utilize similar filmmaking techniques. Including special episodes in our side series that twist the format, we've done over 200 episodes, so there's bound to be one on a film you've been thinking about and want to dig deeper into. So check us out on all the major podcasting apps and at piecingpod.com.
0: Normally I don't construct great segues into ads, but this week's sponsor certainly constructs things well. Take it away, Ron. Hire a very good building company for your construction needs. Or do not. I am not a beggar end of commercial head to very good building company in pawnee indiana and tell the owner ron that the force 5 podcast sent you for an awkward stare because ron 100 has no idea what a podcast is very good building company it's all in the name and it's all built with ron's two hands speaking of segue, let's get to drea clark and some two-hander films <laughs> Welcome back to the Force 5 podcast. I am so excited to have Drea Clark on tonight. She's a producer, film festival programmer, film teacher, podcaster, and certainly somebody who will put most people's movie knowledge to shame, including me, I'm sure. Drea Clark, how are you tonight?
1: That's the most daunting kind of intro. (laughs) Drea, <laughs> you better impress the crowd and then I'm just going to play I have some- no doubt you will. I'll just play some super <laughs> basic films. No, um I'm good. I'm very excited to do this. I enjoy listening. I like this format a lot. Um it's all the fun of coming up with the top 5 but a lot less stress. For not making it feel weaponized. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's you know, it's personal lists. Whatever your top five are, that's what your top five are. Nobody's going to argue.
1: Yeah, um, I l- am constantly looking for realms where no one's going to argue. So that's great. Music to my ears.
0: <laughs> yeah, you don't see that, that very much in this world anymore. But uh, this is a safe spot for five lists right here. I'm a big fan of yours. You're an amazing podcaster. For those who might not be as familiar with your work, why don't you tell us about your podcasting shows and and uh, just kind of like your... Your film realm in the podcasting world.
1: I would love to. So, I'm a, I'm one of the three hosts of Maximum Film on the Maximum Fun Network. And uh, it's, so, I, I do that with uh, film critic Alonzo Duralde and comedian Iffy Wadiwe. And that's a weekly show. We concentrate on um, a different movie each week, some retro, a lot of new releases. And we all come from different perspectives and backgrounds, but are passionate about movies. So we dork out like crazy. Um, and then previously, I used to co-host a podcast that I'm still really fond of called Ticklish Business, which is um, it concentrates on old Hollywood and classic Hollywood films and through a slightly kind of modern feminist um, lens that was with Kristen Lopez and Samantha Ellis and Kimberly Pierce, and it is still going strong. Please support those women. I very much enjoyed it. And if you like classic cinema, I'm on plenty of old episodes. In fact, I railed so hard on John Wayne in our Stagecoach episode that, um, I'm sure I upset many older listeners. <laughs>
0: A lot of mad boomers out there for that one.
1: Claim to fame. Yeah.
0: Well, Maximum Film just hit 250 episodes, right?
1: We did, which is insane. It's also. Oh, that's crazy. We just had a Max FunCon, the sort of final Max FunCon, which is this in person weekend gathering that the network did for a long time. And it was our first time going. And it was just a few weekends ago. And, and you know, it's sort of June 2022. We have not seen each other in person since. January 2020 and yet we've been recording this podcast for the entirety of that time in between so I both see and converse with them more than a lot of other people but we all live like 15 minutes from each other there's no real excuse for it just a lot of (laughs) you know living in bunkers but yeah 250 episodes who knew um it's good it's energetic it's film talk which I always love Oh, and I do a lot of stuff with screen drafts. Yeah, um, which 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 you may know or be familiar with. I'm currently prepping to take tape something for that soon, where I'm drafting Parker Posey movies. Yeah, a oh, lot of okay. Basically, if there's an excuse for me to like feel like I have a homework assignment that's related to film, and then I get to end up talking about it, that's then I'll sit, I'm in. I love it.
0: Actually, screen drafts is where I first got familiar with you. And then I started seeing you on other podcasts that I like, like Movies with Gravy and Incinerator. Yeah. And it's like, okay, yeah, if I can get Drea Clark on here, that would be amazing.
1: Oh, thanks.
0: You also program for film festivals like Sundance. That's super exciting. Any, any film festivals coming up that we should be on the lookout for?
1: Yeah, actually, the film festival that I've currently programmed is running right now. Um, Gina Davis's Bentonville Film Festival in Bentonville Arkansas I've been the film curator there for six years now I think again six or seven years Um, and yeah so I oversee the feature programming and it's great I love it so much I don't know if you're familiar with Gina's work she's the Gina Davis Institute for Gender Studies in Media and a lot of that translates to our mission for Bentonville so my focus there is on looking for films by and featuring underrepresented voices and we look at that's a a broad spectrum for us of um if it's gender race sexuality we are looking for veteran stories disability stories so it's a it's a broad platform for really just kind of finding the best indies out there that are coming you know just unique representation um, and, and that translates a lot to Sundance's mission as well. It's, sure. it's sort of a passion of mine in general. Um, and then my, my background's really been in discovery. I'm, I'm very interested in first time filmmakers, um, and what that kind of says about the career that hopefully they'll be able to have and the sort of emergence of talent and an authorial voice. And it's, it's the most exciting for me, I think to see people sort of just at the, the beginning of what they're going to be doing.
0: Just to give people a, a little um, a glimpse into your movie taste, I always ask this question, and I know it's kind of tough sometimes to come up with that on the fly, but what are some of your favorite movies that would not make our list today? What are some of your favorite non-two-hander movies?
1: Um, well, this is ironically not a directorial debut, even though I just said that was a big thing. But um, Amelie is a forever favorite for me. Um, yeah, it's, it's my desert island movie. Um, largely because I'm, I could finally properly learn French. I think if I just had that one movie <laughs> on my deserted island that somehow has electricity, um, to watch over and over again. But, you know, it's, it's, um, Jean Pierre Junot, I think is an incredible visionary, but it's got a, a beautiful message to it and has that combination of, you know, a film that just really pays attention to every, every aspect of filmmaking beyond just storytelling, you know, you, cause you have, you're flexing other senses, right? You have visuals, you have sound and it, it just does a lot of beautiful work. Um, I'm currently hugely, enormously enamored with uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once, which is the Daniels film that came out this summer.
0: Oh, I still need to see it. I haven't seen it yet.
1: I've known and worked with them for years. It's not their debut. I did love their debut, Swiss Army Man, which I also recommend. Um, They have a really distinctive style and it's... It's 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 when I say messy I mean like it's tangible like it's not trying to be polished or slick there's just something to it that's juicy and it's so great and but it's thought provoking and heartfelt and has some really beautiful messaging. I I'd, I'd say that about both of their features actually. Um yeah, those are those are like the kind, you know, and I think like something like Hunt for the Wilder People, Taika Waititi's film. These are things like I would recommend to anybody. Oh, do you want an enjoyable viewing experience? Those are the kinds of movies that I would throw their way.
0: Well, great picks. Amelie's, uh is an amazing movie, and I can't wait to see everything everywhere all at once. It's on my list. It's just I haven't gotten to watch it yet.
1: If you don't like it, I'll eat my hat.
0: <laughs> well, let's hope you don't have to do that. <laughs> because this show is bad at segues, let's talk about two-handers. Yeah. <laughs> two-handers. Essentially, like... When I think two-handers, uh, it's a term that comes from theater, meaning a piece with only two main characters. And based on emails we exchanged, I know I'm going to play a little bit more loose with the term. I think you are as well. What kind of rules did you put in place for yourself?
1: Well, the classic definition, right, is um, a story, film, or a play. Uh, obviously, we're discussing films here. Hopefully, unless I uh, really prepared wrong. <laughs> But um a, yeah your two-hander is something where you have two protagonists that have the same amount uh, or, or comparable amount of screen time, screen presence and also affect the story um it, with like similar weight and which is important to me. There's plenty of movies. I mean, you know, movies love, love stories. So there's a cabillion love stories out there, but you could argue for a lot of them, like Bridget Jones diary is not a two hander. It's Bridget Jones diary. So, um, yeah. So that was my kind of thing. I know. Yeah. There's a very much a purist classicist reading on this, which is literally only two characters with any lines, with any presence. Um, and there are movies like that out there and, maybe they might end up on the lists, but um there is a slightly broader especially in cinema you have the ability unlike in a that's one of the exciting differences between a theatrical stage presentation and a movie is you have a way to sort of broaden the world and you can bring in other people or bits to sort of give you an idea of what's not happening with these two people at this very moment. So I but I think that the true reading though is that it's really a story about two people and those people have equal um command of it.
0: Yeah, I agree. I went with more of the spirit of the two-hander versus the uh the definition. And for me, it's just it's films that you may have other characters in there, but they're not people that we spend a lot of time with or really get to know and seem to be just in the movie to get people from A to B. Those two those two mm-hmm. main characters that we're focusing on. That's kind of how I went about it. And uh, I'm really excited to, to see what's on your list. Drea Clark, you ready to get to this
1: list? Let's get to this list. Do you know what's going to happen? Mm. You, know, you know what's happening to right now? I know what's going to happen. No, no, no. You just made the list top
0: five, top five. Why don't you kick us off here Drea Clark top five two handers What do you got at number
1: five Okay so number five fittingly Is a directorial debut um, It is called The One I Love So since we're just kind of like dipping our toes in here I think maybe we shouldn't spend too much time In there the first go around Okay how's a 15 minutes sound Yeah I think that's good Hello? Whoa,
0: fascinating. Tell me.
1: Do you understand how insane you sound right now?
0: It's so weird. It's Isn't it? really odd.
1: It's like a perfect retreat. Just the two of you. I've sent a lot of couples there and they've all come back.
0: Renewed. Is it another
1: dimension when you go through the door? You want to go back. This is something that we've been talking about creating a new relationship. I imagine, like, horseback riding with a little satchel of wine. You know? Not some weird version of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. It is a film directed by Charlie McDowell, who's uh, Malcolm McDowell's son, interestingly, and Mary Steenbergen. Um, and it stars Mark Duplass and Elizabeth Moss and Ted Danson appears in a very small role at the beginning and then it really is just the two of them they are a married couple who found that the spark has gone from their relationship they're not really trying things anymore they're not really getting busy with each other anymore uh and Ted Danson their therapist recommends they go to this you know oh go to this vacation retreat this sort of um, remote house and recharge and he sent other couples there and it's worked great for them. And so they get there and it really is just this beautiful space with a beautiful pool and a guest house and they're the only people there. And so it's conversation discussions and, you know, sort of uh, back and forth. But there's also at the heart of the one I love um a psychological and twisty element that i would be loath to reveal. I'm normally not so precious about stories, but this one in particular, it's it's the it's the whole crux of it is is figuring out this reveal. Um and it's very fun to watch that. So, you're watching two people two actors engaging in this very interesting relationship battle that turns into something more um oh that sounds so cryptic but i really i'd love for people to see it so i don't want to get you know if that's my main thing with spoilers is i'd like you to have the same delight in watching it that i did
0: yeah i've got one of those on my list too where i can't really say very much about it and i agree with this one i saw this one and I I really love the two actors, which is what yeah. drew me to it. But it's a great movie, and I'm very spoiler adverse. So yeah, okay, the good. the less said, the better about something good, like good.
1: this. Yeah, and this one, I mean, it's it's all spoilers, right?
0: I didn't even think about this one when I was coming up with my list. I might have rewatched this for for this show if I had thought about it.
1: Well, now you can.
0: And now I can. Now I can. All right, number five for me is also. Um, is this a directorial debut? No, I well. It might be. I'm going to cut this out if it's not. Okay, that's how podcasting works. But uh, my number five here is a horror movie from 2007 called P2. This is a script written by Alex Aha, which you know you're in good hands when you see that name on the uh, on the screenplay. But it's directed by Frank Calhoun and stars Rachel Nichols and Wes Bentley. Are you familiar with P2?
1: No, shocked.
0: If you go straight up to like the Rotten Tomatoes score. Uh, Only 35% of critics like this, which feels pretty low, but to me, I think it's pretty underrated. I think it's really fun. It's about this woman named Angela. She leaves her office Christmas party late Christmas Eve and finds that her car won't start. But it turns out that it's not an accident. Uh, Thomas, the psychotic security guard in charge of the parking garage, wants to spend Christmas with Angela, setting in motion a cat and mouse... And Rottweiler game as she tries to find a way out of the parking garage. So it all takes place in this parking garage setting. And I'm a big, I'm a sucker for great parking garage scenes. This is a (laughs) whole movie of parking garages. I'm not surprised the critics didn't like this movie because the characters do make some bizarre choices. But in terms of that person in peril trying to escape genre film, I think it's really, really fun. And I don't know about you, but I'm a big fan of Christmas horror. So this one gets in the rotation every few years during during the Christmas season. Uh, It's it's just got that Christmas feel to it, even though it takes place in the parking garage. And the star of this movie really is Wes Bentley, who I think most people would probably know from American Beauty, but he kind of steals the show as this insane security guard. And in interviews for this movie, looking back on it, he's talked about how he was really, really into drugs at this time and was kind yeah. of just taking roles to pay for that drug addiction. And it shows on screen. There's a scene where he he dances to the entire Elvis song, Blue Christmas. Uh, he's got these like really wacky kind of rubbery facial expressions that just really work for that psychotic feel. Uh, It is pretty light on gore, because it does have limited characters, but there's at least one death that happens in a very graphic way. Um, It's also a quick watch, which I appreciate. The film kind of propulsively moves forward, and there's not much downtime. The action scenes are really well done, so... Yeah, P2, I think, is a, a great cat and mouse game between two people on Christmas Eve that I really recommend.
1: It sounds great. Alonso Duralde, my co-host, is like the expert of Christmas movies, so now I will <laughs> run that by him.
0: Yeah, I'd be interested to know Yeah, what they
1: think. Wes Bentley is so talented, and I'm so glad is in recovery and is sober and is doing Fun, interesting work, like um, younger people may know him more from The Hunger Games. But he true he, he was in this Michael Winterbottom film called The Claim? The Claim. Yes, I'll say that with less of a question mark. <laughs> and he, yeah, he's, he's got just a really interesting energy. So him menacing someone in a parking structure sounds a dream.
0: It's way better than the 35% that it sits at on Rotten Tomatoes,
1: I'll tell you that much. <laughs> What Rotten Tomatoes is always right. Rotten
0: Tomatoes, I can't trust it since they doused Hot Rod with a rotten score.
1: (gasps) Oh yeah, I don't I don't trust it at all. Oh my God, Hot Rods! My God, daughter's favorite movie, so she would agree.
0: One of mine too. So good. All right, number four for you.
1: All right, number four for me is I did not do this on purpose. But it's also a directorial debut. Um, It is the from 2011. It's called Weekend.
0: What kind of stuff is it that you want me to say? Just talk about last night, you know, what happened, what you wanted to happen. It's for an art project. Yeah. And people can listen to it. If you make the grade, yeah. Okay, um. I saw you in the club and I thought you were out of my league or whatever. And, um. Yeah, we came back here, didn't we? And then you kissed me, you said you took my shirt off. I just thought that we were having a really nice time. And it was lovely. It was more than enough for me. So, um, sorry, Glenn, if I don't make you grade.
1: It is a British uh, romance and drama. Um, it's directed by Andrew Haig. And it is. it stars uh, Tom Cullen and Chris New. And they are, they play Russell and Glenn, two men who meet at just like gay club, like for a hookup and have, uh, you know, a hookup evening together. Um, and then the next morning, instead of sort of immediately going their own ways, Glenn breaks out this, um, uh, tape recorder and starts asking Russell questions and they're Thoughtful and beautiful questions. It's not like oh that's creepy. Instead, it um, it sets up this sort of unexpected intimacy and connection between them. And so the film follows the trajectory of a very short amount of time of a relationship that can't really be. But it's two men who are both responding to the connection they're finding in the other, but also having to address and Sort of un or, or excavate emotional issues and baggage that they have, some related to coming out, some related to, you know, just like being gay with a lot of straight friends, a lot of identity elements. But it's also sexy and fun and beautifully shot. It's very um verite feeling but really well thought out it doesn't have that real meandering sense that some fly on the wall films can get it's it's very tight and beautifully you know structured and paced um but it's just a a really interesting insight to relationships and what they can bring out of people
0: i know of this one but i've never seen it is this uh available anywhere widely or is this something that you'd have to like really search for
1: God, it must be. I I've, I've obviously won't surprise you. I saw it first. It premiered at uh, South by Southwest the year that it came out. Yeah. Um, it's it's rentable. I know that for sure. I think it's on um, AMC Plus as well. I think it's on Criterion Channel too. Oh, well, there it's you go. Lovely. Yeah, it's really beautiful.
0: I've seen people uh, post about this and just haven't gotten the chance to watch it myself. But yeah, it sounds delightful.
1: Yeah, it's a good find. I wish he would get to do more as well. He also he made a, a film called Lean on Pete a few years later that I really liked. And I think he's very talented. Keep our eyes out for old Andrew Haag.
0: Well, that answers my my next question. It was going to be because uh, I, hadn't, I hadn't seen anything that he's done, I don't think. And yeah, I guess I'll have to watch that, too.
1: There you go. Add into the list.
0: To my ever growing list of movies I need to watch. <laughs> All right. Number four for me is also a relationship movie. This one is a little bit more loose on the two-hander realm. Like I said, I've got some films with some auxiliary characters that just kind of get people from A to B. And uh, this is going to be from 2016, my favorite musical of all time, La La Land.
1: Why did you come here? Because I have good news. What? Amy Brandt, the casting director. She was at your play. And she loved it. And she loved it so much but she wants you to come in tomorrow and audition for this huge movie that she's got.
0: I'm not going to that. What? That one's gonna be,
1: no, that one's gonna be. I'm sorry?
0: That will kill me. What? 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 Shh, stop. No. You have to be quiet. If you You want me to, then you you have to make sense. If you want me to be
1: quiet, you have to make some goddamn sense. You tell me why you're not going. It's because,
0: because I've been to a million auditions and the same thing happens every time where I get interrupted because someone wants to get a sandwich or I'm crying and they start laughing or there's people sitting in the waiting room and they're, and they're like me, but prettier Mm. and better at
1: the, because maybe I'm not good enough. Ooh. This is
0: directed by Damien Chazelle. It stars Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling. And I've talked now at length about my personal connection to La La Land on the show before, so I'm going to keep this one short. I'll just say I really, really love this movie. If you're living under a rock and somehow don't know what La La Land's about, it's set in L.A., a jazz musician and an aspiring actress fall in love while attempting to reconcile their aspirations for the future. Like I said, there are some other characters in the film, um, but they're really only used to get Mia and Sebastian from point A to point B, J.K. Simmons is in there in a really tiny, really great role firing Sebastian in the beginning scene. Uh, John Legend's in there kind of giving Sebastian an opportunity to be in a band, but we don't spend much time with them or get to know them. So I would still consider this a two-hander. Like I said, it's a musical. It starts off with this opening number set in Los Angeles traffic that I'm sure you can relate to, at least the traffic part, that – (laughs) <laughs> will just be stuck in your head all day long, or at least until one of the other songs gets stuck in your head along the way. I think the music in this film is fantastic. It's probably played on the, in my house once a week, at least, by my wife and myself. It's just a film that's like, it feels magical to me. It's really whimsical, it's funny, it's emotional. It's, it's a film that shows you that things don't always work out the way you or the audience in this case might want them to. And sometimes you just catch the right person at the wrong time in life. But you can be happy as you let those people go in order to follow your path. And um, it, it all kind of displays that in this medley of all the songs at one point in the film. It's just a really fantastic scene. I love this movie so much. And uh, I consider it a two-hander, La La Land from 2016.
1: Interesting. I wouldn't have thought I, in fact, I took something off my list because I was like, oh, I don't know if that's, could be fu- fully a two-hander, but, um, La La Land's interesting. And I, and I'm with you though. It, it is, I would, I would say yes. I would agree with this, um, on closer inspection because you're right. The other characters are all sort of auxiliary, um, yeah. to support our, our two leads. And then the two leads also have very disparate paths. It's not just about, um, uh, that you know, like they don't only exist for the sake of this relationship. They have external dreams, and ambitions, and setbacks, and and all of those things don't necessarily revolve around the other person as well. So, I, I would agree with that. It's funny to think of a two-hander that has like dance sequences with hundreds of people in them, yeah, with yep. so many hands, so many jazz hands, um. But yeah I'd buy that and I do I think that this film is elevated so much by the ending that you reference the these very bummer but pragmatic ending that's still manages to be that sort of sor- sorrowful mournful um kind of flash up forward and back that you know it's sometimes it's almost more romantic if there's heartbreak involved in a strange way Yeah, and this would be true. And obviously this is a film that references so much um, of classic Hollywood of new age or new wave. Like there's so many great film references in this. Damien Chazelle is like a deep film lover with deep film references and, and kicks them into play with that. So yeah, I would, I would, uh, yeah, I'm excited by that. It, Like I said, didn't even occur to me because I was really like, oh, no, I'm going too broad. Um, But I do. I agree. I agree with your detective work there.
0: Well, I'm glad that you do. I know that this one could have been challenged on a different uh, on a different podcast. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I actually just like you, I took one off my list last minute because I was like, oh, we spend too much time with other characters. And I'll bring it up in the honorable mentions. But I did. take. Okay, I I will, too. (laughs) Um, okay, number three for you.
1: Number three. So this one. So <laughs> these are tricky, and I've heard you mention this before on the show. When there's this thing, and you're like, "Is this is this too obvious?" Or? <laughs> but then it's also ridiculous. Like, there's no such thing as too obvious. You thought of La La Land. Like everybody's yeah. your everyone's you know range of what they're considering is so different. So number three for me was the first thing that came to mind, um, and that is the movie Misery. Somewhere in the middle of nowhere, America's number one author just met his number one fan. I think Paul Sheldon might be in some kind of trouble. You must be a good man. He could never have created such a wondrous, loving creature as Misery Chastain. Very kind. She loves everything he's ever written. Oh, Paul, what a poet you are. Until now. How could you? Any
0: You murdered my misery! Ah!
1: Directed by Rob Reiner. Whatever you think about doing, please don't. From the novel by Stephen King. Trust me, it's for the best. God, I love you. Misery, rated R. Starts Friday, November 30th at Select Theatres. This one, as I said, there's sort of those supporting characters that you flash to, including Lauren Bacall, because why not? Um, but they're really just in search of the, it's based on a Stephen King novel and James Conn is playing basically a Stephen King type. Um, he's an author who's written this enormous uh, catalog of films or sorry, of books about this character named misery, misery, Chastain, you can't kill her. And, um, and he is over it. He feels like he sold his soul. And so he's written one last book and killed her off and uh, is carrying that around. And he gets in a car accident in the snow and is saved by this der- woman who claims to be his number one fan who nurses him back to health. And when she reads said manuscript where he has killed Ms. Misery Sh- Chastain, she goes a bit mad. She's, of course, manic throughout. So you believe the turn that Annie Wilkes takes because Kathy Bates is so good and so intense and, uh, like shimmering in so many interesting ways. She was, I know she was definitely Oscar nominated. I think she might have won for this. Yeah, she, won. um, yeah. And, uh, it's just so good and diabolical, but also just, oh, sweet, harmless lady. It's, <laughs> it's intense. Um, I'd make it higher. It's, it's directed by Rob Reiner and it's, looks like it's directed by rob reiner it's very flat it's uh it's there's not a lot of nuance or you know subtext it's all just text bolded underlined text but it's such a classic and it's such a king is hard to adapt rob reiner actually has one of my favorite other ones of his which is stand by me Mm -hmm. um But he's, you know, famously difficult to adapt. So a story like Misery, which is in this one place, I feel in other hands, people would have wanted to really open this world up. So I think keeping it really insular and just a genuine two-hander that's also um, a male-female story that has nothing to do with falling in love at all. um, (laughs) That's true. I appreciate. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Just a fantastic movie. In in a run for Rob Reiner that was incredible. Like Any director would be lucky to have any one of those films, and he made like five in a row that were just masterpieces. This is one of those films that made me look at Sledgehammers a completely different way, I tell you what.
1: Oh my gosh. And who knew there'd be more than one bad way? Like (laughs) Now, to have multiple bad visions of Sledgehammers. What a thrill. Yeah.
0: Yeah, great pick.
1: Great pick. Good, good, good.
0: Okay, my number three is my last one that I think could be contested as a two-hander, but I'm going to I'm gonna make my argument for it. I'm going to make my case okay. for it. It's from 2012, and it's a film by David Ayer called End of Watch. First custom of the day. From the writer of Training Day comes a one-of-a-kind emotion picture. That guy's into something. You think? That will keep you on the edge of your seat. It's groundbreaking.
1: Hi. Who's in charge here?
0: You, you need to power down.
1: You think I knew what we were rolling up
0: on? Intense. Follow me in the house. Riveting.
1: wanna come into a hood?
0: Unforgettable.
1: Go! Move!
0: Move! Move! And Newsweek hails. It's the best cop movie in years. to help. End of Watch, Reddit R. There are other characters in this movie, but at its core, this movie is about the relationship between two LAPD officers named Brian and Mike who let their hubris get them in deep with some real bad people. It's shot documentary style, so it's supposed to be like one or the other filming at all times. Of course, this like is nonsensically breaks for dramatic purposes, but it's us hanging out with these two guys through, I guess, like a a couple of weeks of their career. Uh, David Ayer movies don't always hit for me, and I think actually aside from this movie and Fury, I actively hate most of his movies, but (laughs) <laughs> this one just worked for me on all levels. And it's because of those two actors, Jake Gyllenhaal and Michael Pena in the lead roles. They're just so, so good. And we really get to know these guys, even though you, you probably won't like them. You, de- you You see in like short bursts that there's more to them and their lives because we get to see that they have a family at home. The fact that we really get to know them and hang out with them makes the peril even that much more tense because these dudes get into some situations. After a routine traffic stop, they they have this haul of money and guns bound for the cartel and the cartel marks them for death, which leads to this climax that is like white knuckle stuff and they, as they, they have to survive this ambush, I'm not going to reveal anything more, but I will say that it has some gut punches in this movie and it's like it's a really done really well done buddy cop movie and i'm a sucker for those kind of movies now i know this is probably the one that's going to get the most resistance as being a two-hander what do you think
1: it's tricky because again it's it's a film that it's entirely balanced on these two men and their performances and they have such a strong rapport between them. Um, and it, it pulls off so well there are to me, there's more, um, side storylines that they're not necessarily carrying in this. Um, they're small. So like the, the crux of it, but when you think of it, like I haven't seen this movie for years and all I do remember are the two of them and yeah. what they're doing. It's also interesting because it's shot, you know, sort of documentary is it maybe even found footage. It's it's supposed to be
0: found footage. Yeah. Like he has right? his little camcorder yeah. that he's yeah bringing around with him.
1: Yeah. You know, which is, <laughs> <laughs> which is a, a whole conceit, but um, it, it does enable you to get very close to these two. And it it's also an unexpected two-hander, more than just the fact that there's other characters. Um, just the the seeming unbalance of star power between Jake Gyllenhaal and Michael Pena is kind of great. Like if it had been you know, normally in those you get two dudes of equal rank. Right. And Michael Pena is like a established and beloved character actor and primarily comedic um so seeing him in something like this where i thought he really excelled um is great and so it does lift that idea of this is about two men and these were the best men for it like you get that kind of sensibility um i think it's also because i i i think the argument to make is is it a two-hander or like a buddy cop movie but The tone of it and what they're doing is, you know, at odds, like it's, it's not hitting a lot of the points that, but you know, this is not, uh, 48 hours or whatever.
0: (laughs) It's not Showtime with Eddie Murphy and De Niro.
1: Right. (laughs) It is. It is not. It's, it's its own thing. Hmm. Hmm, interesting.
0: This is one that I, like I said, I expect some uh, some rubber banding on this one, but I, I promise my two and one, there will be no debates.
1: I wonder, as always with these, I always wonder if there's going to be a crossover or if we just have identical two and ones. Oh, we'll see.
0: We'll see. All right, what do you got at number two?
1: All right, for number two, uh, this one for me, it's like it's the archetype. Um, It's before sunrise Yeah The be- the beginning of the Linklater trilogy I have no idea what your
0: situation is But I feel like we have some kind of uh, connection
1: Yeah, me too So listen, here's the deal This is what we should do You should get off the train with me here in Vienna And come check out the town
0: Since we're never going to see each other again I don't think we should sleep together Let's see each other again Castle Rock Entertainment presents Ethan Hawke and Julie Delphi In a new romantic comedy from Richard Linklater <laughs> oh. before sunrise rated r at select theaters friday
1: um it's julie delpy and ethan Hawke. this is the first film where they meet on a train headed toward towards vienna he's an american student who was soon to be flying home she is a parisian student um, headed back to paris and they decide to spend the evening wandering it is a Walk and talk the entirety of the movie. Um, it is banter and very little conflict. And yet it is never dull. There are constantly things happening, even though they're not the same. Like, ooh, there's an inciting incident. There's not a villain. There's not anything beyond the kind of ticking clock and audience awareness that they just have this one evening and, and then planes to catch or trains to catch and. Um, yeah, it is, it's so lovely and it stands up so well. And the fact that it birthed two sequels that also, that, you know, came kind of nine years apart, each of them and, and follow the same line of questioning and deep thought of what connection means and what relationships look like. And, um, yeah, I think these are kind of linchpins of American indie cinema. Um, and before sunrise is the absolute embodiment of a film that looks like it's so easy to make and it is very much not <laughs> probably i i can't tell you how many hundreds of poorly rendered um, mimicries i saw uh, submitted to <laughs> indie festivals i bet after this film was made yeah
0: well you you kind of talked about how good it is you know, the, the Testament of it having two sequels. It also has like two spiritual sequels in two days in Paris and two days in New York as well.
1: Oh, her films. Yeah. yeah.
0: And, uh, I think that the strength of this, it has to lie on your two main characters and Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy mm-hmm. just do such an amazing job. This movie, uh, any list that you find uh, online and there aren't many. Cause I, I often look to other people's lists to see like, Oh, did I miss anything or should I mention anything? And this is going to be at or near the top on any of those lists. It's um, just a masterpiece.
1: Yeah, it's so good. And we actually, for Maximum Film, we we did the before trilogy. We also did the entirety of the Fast and Furious franchise, <laughs> lest I sound too hoity-toity. But we discussed the um, each of the three before movies, so I got to rewatch them last year and then revisited again for this it really it really stands up so well and it also it makes you feel i mean when i first watched this film i was there i mean they're a little older than me but i was around that age. like it was in my near future that i i did do a year abroad and like all this stuff oh and then to watch it now as an older lady <laughs> <laughs> i was i was immediately taken back i was like oh yeah to be early 20s and wandering europe and being like yes you know what's safe hanging out with this total freaking random for a whole evening this is what i'm gonna do um yeah it's a great time capsule
0: yeah it's it's so interesting too to see as we catch back up with them basically every 10 years like you see these characters have gone through 10 years of life and uh just yeah it's really cool yeah um, my number two is, I'll just, I'll say this, you earlier brought up a movie directed by Malcolm McDowell's son, and this one stars Malcolm McDowell. It's also a movie that I'm going to say very little about. It's the one that I alluded to earlier that I, mm-hmm. I just cannot spoil this movie because it's amazing. It's got an amazing ending. Uh, this movie is from 1987. It's called The Caller. The Caller is directed by Arthur Allen Seidelman, who was primarily a TV Uh, director. He directed a lot of TV movies and TV episodes and this was I think maybe one of his first features. Stars Madeline Smith Osborne and Malcolm McDowell and it's about this woman who if you look at up on like IMDb she's just called the girl and Malcolm McDowell is just called the caller because their names are never mentioned in the movie. But she's a woman who lives alone in the woods. She hears a knock at the door and it's this guy who asks if he can use her phone. And uh, I'll just say that a conversation starts, and we, as the audience, start to realize that these folks both know a lot about whatever situation they're talking about. But everything is is revealed in very small bites, stretching the single idea that you might have seen on Alfred Hitchcock Presents in the '70s into this meeting filled with all kinds of like bizarre stuff, and an ending that's just—it's a crackerjack ending. It's great. Uh, the writer actually wrote on Alfred Hitchcock Presents, which does make sense that it would feel that way. It just feels like like um, nothing I've ever seen before, and it ends in a way that I don't think anybody will see coming. It's got a real, like, what the hell ending uh, that works. It works for me. The, um, the writer was also largely known for his work in TV. Uh, there are, like, Obvious nods to this game. They're both kind of playing. It feels like a game of chess. And then you see them sitting at a table with a chessboard on it. And it's like, okay, uh, they're definitely <laughs> smacking you over the head with the symbolism, but it's, it's really great. And both actors give really good performances. McDowell. I'm sure everybody probably knows from stuff like clockwork orange, but Madeline Smith Osborne is pretty largely unknown apart from some TV roles and funny farm. If you're interested in seeing The Caller, Vinegar Syndrome released this on disc a few years ago, and it's never looked better. Mm. Um, so yeah, The Caller from 1987, a great two-hander that I highly recommend. But go in blind.
1: I've never even heard of that. I love everything about that pitch. And that's my, I mean, right there, I know it's not because of the, the background of the director, but that's actually the premise of like, that's a great indie, right? Yeah. Like that's a, what can I make? economically but really pack a lot of skill into really show people what i can do in one location two people lots of hijinks somehow <laughs> mental psychological hijinks oh that sounds great i'll check out the the vinegar syndrome release i i'll say because i just looked it up it does look like the most 1987 of poster oh, art for sure uh which is a credit. Like, I mean, I, I'm not looking for a 1987 film called The Caller and not getting that poster art, you know? Yeah. Like, give me that sweet VHS worn on the worn on the corners.
0: <laughs> so good. It's so good.
1: Yay.
0: Okay. Grand finale time. Number one, Drea Clark, top five two-handers. What do you got at the top?
1: All right. So- this this film is kind of why i wanted to do this category because it, it there is so it's definitely not a directorial debut it's a very it's an auteur um it is 1966 persona the ingmar bergman film um it is so fascinating it's a linchpin of uh, film theory, film studies, production studies it's so exquisitely shot. The premise is um, you have this actress, a stage actress named Elizabeth, and uh, she suddenly in the middle of a performance goes mute and she's kind of overwhelmed with life, done with it, just in a in a weird headspace um, they at the sort of institute she ends up in her doctor tells her to go off and feel better and take this nurse Alma with you. Um, a woman around her own age who is as chatty as Elizabeth is mute. And they end up in the woods in their strange dynamic. And Alma talks more and more and Elizabeth says less and less. And yet power dynamics, power struggles arise between the two of them in unexpected ways. And then it really starts to blend between is this a dream sequence? I think this is a dream sequence. If it is, what does this dream mean? If it's really happening, why does this make sense? And there's so much to enjoy and analyze about this film. And I think it says so much about, um, oh man, emotional pulls within women and the, just the destructiveness of, uh, mental struggles and there's there's so much here but again it's also being the commentary from Bergman is it's translating to the film itself like other than at the end of it you see a moment of like the filmmakers like this acknowledgement that it's a film and then there's bits within of things sort of the A character is all out of focus, and then they're suddenly in focus, or you know you have literally the film look like it's burning up in front of you like it's constantly reminding you that you're watching something very contrived and very controlled, and yet it's so much about a humanistic um activity like these how these women are, and there's tenderness there's there's moments that feel seductive it's it's like every human emotion. Is in this, and it's just two women, and, and really for a large part of it, you know, again, there's, you have your doctor, you have a husband that shows up, you have these small things, but rarely. It's really so much these two women in this very isolated, um, pastoral and, you know, external space. It's, yeah, it's incredible.
0: I have recently picked this up, the Criterion. Uh, there were like a hmm. couple of um, like buy two, get one free sales recently on Amazon and Target. And I picked this up and I have never seen it. And oh, I need but to but you see have it.
1: it. Yeah, yeah, great.
0: Yeah, I just got it. Well, I got it in, to try and watch it for this list because it was on the, you know, it was just like before sunrise. It was on like every list hmm. and I just did not get a chance to watch it in time. And now you're really selling me on putting this one in tonight.
1: It's a great example of, you know, when we started talking about how two-handers, the phrase originated in the theater, persona could not be made on stage. Like it's it's that utilizing a lot of the concepts of what you would present in a two-hander on stage, but it is, it is a work of film. It could only be told in the medium that it's told in, um, which I think is another thing that really kind of helps it transcend
0: well you've got me sold you've got me sold and you've also given me a perfect segue to my number one which has a couple of similarities to what you were talking about first off you could never make this movie on stage it has to be told Mm. in film and second off it has a really strong female protagonist this is the first one that came to my mind when you brought the topic up and uh i i love this movie so much it is 2013's gravity
1: beautiful don't you think what the sunrise (laughs)
0: This one, directed by Alfonso Cuaron, starring Sandra Bullock and George Clooney. Uh, It's about Dr. Ryan Stone, played by Sandra Bullock. She's a brilliant medical engineer on her first shuttle mission with veteran astronaut Matt Kowalski. He's in command of his last flight before retiring, because it's a movie. So, of course, it's got to be like the retirement mission. Oh, sure. But on this, what seems to be a routine spacewalk, there is disaster. The shuttle's destroyed. And Stone and Kowalski, completely alone, tethered to nothing but each other, and spiraling out into the blackness of space. That's our situation. Now, I don't know how you feel about 3D movies, but I tell you, I typically hate them. They just feel gimmicky to me. The picture quality in theaters takes a huge drop, typically. And, uh... There's only two films, only two films that I thought were made better by seeing them in 3D. One is Jackass 3D, which Ah! (laughs) I mean, obviously 100% gimmick, but used in such a bonkers way. And the other one is Gravity. To this day, it remains one of my favorite theatrical experiences. I saw it in uh, 3D IMAX, and like my wife and I were just blown away, like seat gripping to the point of like being sweaty. Uh, I love these films that put obstacle after obstacle and from the characters and this movie totally does that. The sound design, not even taking into account like what's happening on the screen, but the sound design in this film is incredible. And there are scenes of complete silence in this movie and everybody in the theater I was in was absolutely silent with it. Like you could hear a pin drop in that theater. The way it's shot is amazing. And typically I'm not a big Sandra Bullock fan. I do think she's good in certain roles, but she's never been a draw for me. But I thought she was terrific in this. Um, And with a lesser performance, this film falls apart. I think she just carried this movie. I I loved her so much in it. And just like the collar, it can be really heavy handed with its themes, especially like the rebirth stuff. It's uh, it's real heavy handed, but it didn't even matter to me because it's so masterfully made. And no other movie I've seen a lot of movies that take place in space, but no other movie has ever made me feel Like I'd been floating around in space. And this movie did that. It's 90 minutes long too. It's like the perfect length for a movie like this. You're just really feeling that anxiety for 90 minutes until the last couple minutes. I think it's a a masterpiece. I love Gravity. And it had to be my number one.
1: Yeah, I love this movie. It's funny. I didn't include it largely because when I was writing up my list, I I just think of it being just her. Yeah, which is not true. He is there for a good chunk of it, but it turn like to me, the pivotal stuff. It becomes a single hander, Um, which isn't to say I wouldn't count it. I I think it definitely fulfills, you know, what we're talking about for a two hander. and it is. It's exquisitely made. I'll say when I, I did not see this in three d, and I honestly don't know if I could. Like I feel like I'd freak out. It was I tough. remember when the <laughs> when the first trailer came up, and the trailer just ends with, it's just the like her. It's just the first time they're out there, right? And it's the spinning, the spinning, and you're seeing like the universe around you. And I was like, uh-uh. no, thank <laughs> you. Like, I'd rather see a thousand Freddy Kruegers coming at me than the naked expanse of the universe. Like, it was so intense. So I can't imagine what it was like in 3D at all. It's um, one of those
0: theatrical experiences yeah. I will literally never forget.
1: No, I love that i love that and that you hold that with uh jackass 3d i enjoy that a lot (laughs) um no this you're so right and it is it's it's beautiful artistic filmmaking it's not just this is something that could have very much felt like a cold example of like the technology available but instead it felt like oh no this is human rooted storytelling and the technology is being used to serve that storytelling and not the other way around. And I think, I think it makes such a big difference in the, in the final project. Cause we've all seen things that were like, cool, you have a camera that does that, you know? Um, and it's, it's, which is the horse and which is the cart. And this one, the horse is very much the, the story of this especially of this woman and yeah it's it's fantastic
0: oh wow so we had no crossover which None. really surprises me uh i was thinking like we would have at least one but i'm so happy that we didn't people have 10 awesome movies that we are recommending here
1: i feel good about this list
0: same here same here yeah what narrowly missed your list that would have been on there if it was like top 10
1: I have a couple Um, the lighthouse uh, the recent film with um, Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson sure uh, that is it's so unique and quirky and visceral and strange Um, in in unexpected ways like persona hit a lot of the similar buttons for no they are nothing alike but in terms of a, a very artistic intense approach that anyway so the lighthouse is great how to steal a million uh with this uh, audrey hepburn and peter o'toole a film i adore I can't recommend enough um it is a romantic semi-heist movie that's really just two people but it's honestly that's the one i cut out last minute because i was like i think there's a few too many characters yeah but they really are just auxiliary they're really just like put like oh there's an insurance guy now they got to do this thing so um it's the two of them at their most charming and it's Audrey Hepburn so that's saying a lot. It's my favorite Audrey Hepburn movie. I'm probably the only person who says that. And then the the last one that was really hard to not um put is Open Water, which is such a it's two people, it's based on some kind of true story or maybe they just said that to freak me out more, <laughs> but it's um it was also an unexpected Sundance film, but It's two people who go scuba diving on vacation with the group and then the group and the boat leave them while they're still deep underwater and they surface. And it's just the two of them and their relationship dramas in the wide open sea and sharks begin circling. It is so intense, but it's so well done for what it is like. Oh, yeah. Anyway, so that one was very close.
0: I need to rewatch that one. I haven't seen that one since it came out in like 2004.
1: Yeah, came out forever ago. Yeah,
0: I had a couple that were not mentioned. You you had Misery on there, which was on my honorable mentions. You mentioned Swiss Army Man, which uh, could have been on here as well.
1: Oh my god, one of my favorite movies. <laughs> That's hilarious. I didn't even think of that as a two hander, but it, tr- it, it it is.
0: Yeah, when you oh, said that, I was like, oh, I wonder if she's going to so... have it on her list.
1: I'm not going to tell the Daniels. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, I had Enemy Mine on there, which, which almost made my list with, um, Dennis Quaid and Louis Gossett Jr. as to, uh, a human and an alien who are stuck together in opposing sides of a war. Um, Palm Springs almost made my list, but then I realized mm-hmm. like J.K. Simmons, he has too big of a role yeah. to, to really call that a two-hander. And, um, the other one that I, I cut off because I rewatched it originally originally it was on my list and then I rewatched it last night was collateral from 2004 which oh yeah Michael I always Mann. yeah I always remembered it as just Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx but there's a whole subplot with um Mark yeah. Ruffalo so that one had to come off my list but spiritually it it really is more like end of watch and that it's kind of a two-hander because it's all about just those two guys in the taxi right but um hey Huge applause. We had some awesome picks. Yay. No crossovers. Uh, Obviously, this stuff's going to be in the show notes, but where can people find more of your work? Where do you want people to go to see more Drea Clark?
1: Um, I'm on Twitter at Clark. I'm a sporadic tweeter, but I'm there. And uh, yeah, give a listen to Maximum Film if you are a movie podcast enjoyer. <laughs> and that's where... I- Wherever you find podcasts, you'll find us.
0: wherever you're listening to this, um, go ahead and switch off now or listen to the outro and then switch off. um, And yeah, go to (laughs) Maximum Film. Drea Clark, thank you so much for coming on tonight. It was such an honor having you on.
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me. That was great fun.
0: Recapping the list, Drea Clark's five to one. She had The One I Love, Weekend, Before Sunrise, Misery, and Ingmar Bergman's Persona. And uh, my list I had at number 5, P2, number 4, La La Land, End of Watch at number 3, The Caller at number 2, and Gravity as number 1. But I know there are plenty of two-handers out there that we miss. What did we miss? Let us know, Force5Pod on Twitter, Force5Podcast on Instagram. But before you do that, please take a minute, rate and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. It really helps me out. Intro and outro bumpers today come courtesy of Nate Spears. The Top 5 List Bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, which is show number 100, stay safe, stay sane, and go watch some movies with only two people. Or more. It doesn't matter. five. More like Barry. Below average. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, you shouldn't laugh at your own jokes.